This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I was carrying Steve Jobs bags on the Apple IPO Roadshow. It was amazing. It was amazing because he's such a phenomenal entrepreneur with such a life force that I think it was transformative for me to see somebody who was so young, only a year older than I was, who had such conviction and it it got me incredibly excited about working with entrepreneurs. From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there, and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. On today's episode, we're talking with a veteran from the world of venture capital, Annie Lamont. She has more than 30 years of experience in the industry. She's currently the co-founder and managing partner of Oak HCFT, which is a VC firm that manages more than a billion dollars in assets. So often here on No Limits, we hear from entrepreneurs about funding and how they got the money. So I thought... Let's bring in someone from the other side to hear it from their perspective. You're about to hear how you can break into the VC world, when to pursue those VC funds, they're not right for every company, and some of the biggest mistakes that founders make when pitching their companies. Here's Annie Lamont. Annie Lamont, welcome to No Limits. Thanks, Rebecca. Great to be here. I'm so happy to have you here with us because we talk so much to founders about raising money and what that's like, raising venture capital. Here you are on the other side of it, more than three decades in the venture capital space on the Forbes Midas list. You're looking at all of these different companies every day and getting a taste from that side of things. But I want to go back to you and how you got your start. You started out studying political science. That's right. So I, I no thought, venture capital at the time no, no, in your no. head. I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. I cured myself very quickly of that. <laughs> <laughs> how did you cure yourself of wanting to be a lawyer? Well, I was a paralegal for my first six months after graduation. And I went in, but it was very interesting because there was no, there were no computers for file storage then. And, and the first thing I worked on for the first six months was a document-based litigation support system. And so I was in the basement of a mini-computer company that was being sued, that happened to be guilty, and we were literally <laughs> creating the technology to support a document-based, uh, computer-based, document-based uh, litigation support system. So, so it was interesting because I was actually working on the tech side of it with these engineers, and I one, I realized that I couldn't represent a guilty client. Yes. Too righteous. And two, I got excited about what they were doing and moved back to San Francisco. When you left the job. So you left after six months. So I left after six months. Yes, it is funny because people say, you know, leave college, go to, you know, stay somewhere a year, right? stay, make sure you stay two years. It's very hard for me to tell my children because I had three jobs in the first two years out of college. <laughs> uh, but the but I came back to San Francisco and uh, roomed with someone who worked at E.F. Hutton, and he came home every day saying, 
you know, this company, Hambrecht and Quist, is winning all of the business. And I said, okay, that's where I want to be. I want to be working in technology. They were the leading venture capital investment bank boutique in San Francisco. Uh, and I was one of the first 50 employees there. And you worked in every department. There were no walls. You know, there were, no, it was, there were tons of conflicts, right? The venture group and the research group and the investment banking group were all one. We There's all supposed about to be everything. very strict rules right. because you don't want the analyst to say, oh, this company looks great just to get the investment banking right. business. Right, exactly. But we, we footnoted all of that on our research reports. <laughs> There's disclaimers. There, there were disclaimers, but, you know, massive conflicts. But, um, and I had an amazing year and a half there. Uh, one of the first things I did was I was with, uh, uh, I was carrying Steve Jobs bags on the Apple IPO Roadshow. Wow. Um, what and, was that like? Oh, my gosh. That was, an, it was amazing. It was amazing because, He's such a phenomenal entrepreneur with such a life force that I think it was transformative for me to see somebody who was so young, only a year older than I was, who had such conviction. And it it got me incredibly excited about working with entrepreneurs. So how old was Steve Jobs on this roadshow? I was 24, 23, 24. He was 25. 25 years old. He was 25 when he took Apple Public. Was he, was he kind to you? <laughs> he was... He was, I was irrelevant. Let's put it yeah. that way. Well, that's, I mean, look, whether it was Steve Jobs or right. any other person, right. Right. when you're in that role, right. Right. you're sort of the, unfortunately, the irrelevant person. Right. right. I was the irrelevant person, but I was, um, but it was an amazing experience to watch him in action, to ha- to see somebody so young have a point of view like he did. Yeah. And, uh, and conviction around his ideas and beliefs about how everything should be done. I mean, nothing was left to chance for this man. Um, and so, and the, then the vision, which you saw obviously all the way through to the iPhone and, and apps. Um, it's just, it was incredible. So that was a seminal moment where I realized I really wanted to be working with somebody as creative as that. Um, and, it's great to be in research, but you're reporting on what somebody else is doing. And it's great to be investment banking, but it's a transaction. I just felt like I didn't want to do, once I'd done three IPOs, I'd done three IPOs. And, but the idea that I would be working with these entrepreneurs, potentially working with these entrepreneurs in the future, that grabbed hold of me. So a year and a half in, I just knew I had to be a venture capitalist. I wasn't the entrepreneur. I was more of the editor, want to help them be around these inspirational, creative people that have a vision. But I say so that is so he really was the inspiration for mm. my career. You're lucky to have learned that so early, because I think that's a lesson a lot of us take much longer over the course of a career to f- fully realize. So once you knew this, getting into venture capital is not easy. You know, you have to create a business like Google and then sell the right, business right. and then have enough money right. or have the uh, the pedigree right. to actually go and and do venture capital. So right. what was your path? Right. I think because I got into the industry early, there wasn't as much of a list of what exactly your pedigree had to be. I mean, of course, having gone to Stanford, that was helpful uh, because I knew people. And it, it was really pure happenstance and passion around knowing I wanted to be in the, in this field. Um, I fortuitously, and I think so much, so much is the intersection of luck and will. Mm-hmm. And I r- r- had this conviction. I ran into a friend on the elevator who worked at NEA, one of the major venture capital firms. I went out to drinks with him, told him that I, I, this is what I had to do with my life. The very next day, the founder of Oak, the firm I, I ended up joining on the East Coast, uh, call, uh he, the individual I met with uh, 
called the founder of Oak and said, I'm going to, I, uh, I'm going to be funding something called Victoria's Secrets. And, you know, are you interested? And, and the founder of Oak said, no, I'm, I'm not interested <laughs> in a, a catalog. Um, but I am, inter- I am looking for a research associate with a technology background. And he ended up saying, I've got the girl for you. And literally three weeks later, I moved to Westport, Connecticut. Wow. So, three weeks. That's three a quick weeks. hire, by it, the way. It was, it was a quick hire. The, you know, he happened to be on the West Coast the next week. I, the following week, uh, went to Oak to interview with the rest of the team and, and moved the following week. And so I was with them for over 30 years and four years ago founded my own firm, also called Oak, but Oak HCFT is opposed to Oak Investment Partners. So I want to come to the decision in a few minutes about how you decided to found your own firm. But let's talk about looking at companies, um, because I think there are so many founders out there. They they hear the idea of venture capital money. They think, oh, that's that might be a good idea because it's one that gets talked about so much. When is a company right for venture capital money? For any idea, you can start with friends and family. I think the question is, is this a company that's going to need 10, 20, 50 million, 100 million dollars to get off the ground and drive a a large business. And if you want help in forming a business, in strategically thinking about your business, if you want to create a really professional operation, you you probably want venture capitalists around the table, particularly if you haven't done it before. Um, We have... We have industry connections, knowledge, but also just the basics about how do you develop a great business. And I think, you know, I think a classic example of not doing that is Theranos. Mm. Because if you think about what happened to Theranos, they had no professional VCs on that board. They had no one that was really spending time and vetting what they were doing and challenging management and keeping them honest, truthfully. So this is Elizabeth Holmes, the founder of Theranos, dropped out of Stanford, 19 right. years old, right. went to create the company. Uh, the The company, for those of you who are new to the idea of Theranos, we've talked about it here on the podcast a couple of times, but Theranos blood testing company, her goal was to use a single drop of blood to run multiple blood tests. The SEC has now stepped in. The Department of Justice has is investigating, and the issue is that they were not. They actually hadn't developed the technology that they were claiming to right. have developed. Right. So that oversight, you believe, would have caught something. Absolutely. But you have to get the venture capitalists to the table interested right. in order right. to have the oversight. And right. I, I, from my understanding, there are plenty of VCs who might have taken a look at Theranos along the way and decided. This isn't really for us. I think that that's true, but it isn't. It wasn't for them because she wasn't being transparent about what she was doing, so that no one felt comfortable. I think at the end of the day, with what she had. Mm. When did you first learn about Theranos? Well, I had a funny experience. I about four or five years ago, I was doing an interview with Forbes and then speaking at a conference that they had. Um, I think that was 2014. Elizabeth Holmes was on before me. And I left my purse in the green room and I could not get into the green room because she was there and she had two bodyguards outside the green room, two inside the green room. And I had to wait an hour to get to leave because she had my purse in this room. And I was like, who the hell is this woman? (laughs) So, wow. Did you have any interaction with her? I did not have any interaction. (laughs) No interaction with her. But as a, you know, as a Stanford alum, 
Were right. you you kind of knew who she was, maybe, or you had read about it, or, or I, not really? Literally that summer, I yeah, I had seen. I think maybe that was the year that she was on the cover of Fortune, right? Right. Um, and before that, she was not a phenomenon in the healthcare world. I mean, it was not something that people were following. That venture capitalists talked about it. Uh, it. I think there was probably a billion dollar financing. Do- you know, some financing done at a high valuation that elevated her. Uh, status and and then became one of one of the um, billion dollar companies that we talk about. Yeah. But they never came and pitched you. No, or your no, company. no, no. I think she deliberately did not want venture capitalists in her firm. Right? They would be way too nosy and want to understand what, how the technology worked. When you see a situation like that, how do you think something like that happens? The sad part about it is that we've talked about women not selling the big idea, not being able to promote, not you know, not articulating that. And here's vision. one who is selling and the massive idea. Killed me. It made me so sad because here's she's selling the big idea. She's convinced the establishment to support her. Establishment meaning older white guys, frankly. <laughs> A lot of politicians, uh, right, former politicians. Right, right. And then I do think what happened was, I think she was probably sincere in the beginning and believed that she'd create something great and then deluded herself into um, believing eventually they would figure it out and she could just in the lie to people in the meantime. And there's one thing to telling a story and there's another thing to misrepresenting results. Mm-hmm. And and she got to the point where she became so deluded by her vision of her own success that she was fine with essentially mis- completely misrepresenting results. Especially when you're talking about healthcare. One thing I say about investing in healthcare is we never back an entrepreneur that's not about mission because if it's about the if it's about making a lot of money, you could do that in a lot of different ways. You don't want to do that in healthcare. It has to be about the mission. You have to believe, because you it is about patients' lives. People do can die, um, and it's and it's important to us. I mean, we have this view that if you're not about lowering costs, improving quality in healthcare, we're not interested in whatever you're doing. And it, whatever you're doing might be great, but not you know not for us. And I think that was telling in the book Bad Blood was that she stated at a very young age that she wanted to be a billionaire and that she wanted to make money. And if you if that's your goal, then go into real estate or something. You know, it's don't don't go into healthcare. It wasn't she didn't. I think she could tell a great story about saving lives. But honestly, she didn't feel it in her heart there. Right. She would not have been misrepresenting results and going as far as to actually do lab tests on, on people and representing those results as accurate when they weren't. That was to me, it's criminal criminal behavior. So what do you say are some of the biggest mistakes that companies make when they come to you? The biggest mistake um, you can make is to um, is to not value team. It's very important to have a strong team come with you. And it's not just about the CEOs. Certainly one of the ways we evaluate CEOs is that they are Pied Pipers. You know, they have great people that will follow them. And it really is about building that team in order to build a large company. You know, the other thing is, is you define a market. I can tell you in healthcare, the first question we ask is, who will buy, who will pay and why? And many, it's amazing how many entrepreneurs haven't really thought that through in healthcare, particularly those new to the industry. I mean, those entrepreneurs that we back are not only passionate and have a great idea, but also 
intimately. Like there is no one when they walk in the door, there's no one that understands that market and that competition and pro, you know products that better than than that CEO. That's such a good point, and it's also I, I definitely think a lot about this idea of who's going to buy it because you can have a great idea. But if no one's buying that, you don't really have a business. Right. You don't have a business, particularly in healthcare. I mean, there's certainly other consumer businesses where I couldn't, I couldn't potentially evaluate whether a consumer would pay or not. But in, but in healthcare, consumers generally don't pay. I mean, 23andMe is amazing because they've gotten consumers to pay. There are very few companies that have done that today. When you look at investing, you know the statistics around women and getting venture capital dollars. Last year, it was a little over 2% of VC money went to women. My understanding is that the statistics are improving, but it's still a really small piece of the pie. Why do you think that is? I think it's a couple things. There's, I think there's a combination of we see fewer female entrepreneurs, but we're seeing more. Really very encouraged on that front. There are many more women putting themselves out there being CEOs and certainly senior members of the team. We're mean, seeing many more companies with women as senior members of the team. So I think first you have to get more women in the game mm-hmm. and, and in the game looking at large opportunities. And I think that's beginning to happen. Um, and then next, we do model be, you know, be, sort of behavior off of the what has been standard leadership characteristics. What does this look like? So I think as you develop the entrepreneurial community around women, that you also will have more VCs, that VCs follow that pattern, that there will be there, there uh, and obviously there is so much noise around it right now, that these women are being hired into VC firms. But we've got to get beyond the sort of one token women, mm-hmm. woman in a partnership sort of like, here, we've done our job. We've added one. Right. You know, Check it off the list. Check the box. We got one woman in the partnership now. So I, I think it just has to become more you know standard and rote. I it was interesting when my daughter was at Stanford Business School and as they were ranking people before they even knew them in a class as to who had leadership capabilities, it was still very biased to the mm. sort of, you know, sort of tall, good looking guy, you know, versus knowledge and, um, you know, driving that decision. Then it was before people really even knew each other. That's so wild. Yeah, it was it was wild. How many stereotypes still exist amongst 27 year olds? Something that you touched on that interests me, it's something that um, Jenny Fleiss and Jen Hyman, the co-founders of Rent the Runway, Jenny Mm -hmm. Fleiss is now at Jet Black. They have both touched on this idea that uh, when you are sharing an idea, that idea has to be really big, larger Mm -hmm. than life. Mm -hmm. And they have both suggested that something that they've seen with female entrepreneurs is that they oftentimes will share and illustrate the smaller vision the step, the incremental, you're shaking your head yes, the incremental vision as opposed to, hey, guys, I'm going to dazzle you with this multi-billion dollar idea. Right, exactly. No, I think that's absolutely right. For some reason, um, women are much more likely to be concrete and incremental and, and have to prove, you know, feel they have to prove to you. And maybe that's a combination of genetics as well as I, I'm sure I, I think it's environment. Mm-hmm. A lot of it's around environment. Um, and men are much more willing to come in and paint the big picture and sell you on something and, you know, and sell you on the big vision. And I think that women are understanding and feeling enabled uh, and and empowered to paint that big vision. They have the vision. Yeah. It's really more about like w- their interpretation of what somebody will buy into. Right. And I think 
they're learning that people want to see it, that you have a big vision and you could build a big company um, and and, be- and believe in yourself. And then people will believe in you. And it's employees believing in you and management team and it's investors. And I think that's it's absolutely true. And I, I will say I think that's true in terms of uh, in the investing world. And if you think about VCs and female VCs, I mean, I think that uh, women have to prove performance, feel they have to prove performance and probably do have to prove performance uh, more than than a man in terms of going out and getting money. So I think that's changing because now you actually have a uh, you have money that's selected amongst LPs for emerging managers to focus on women. You know, people feel like they want to empower women. And so they're 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 being more conscious about their bias in the market. And I think women are being more aggressive because uh, there is no question that you could look at track records and you could see many men who have gone out and raid funds with less track records than women than the women in mm. the industry. So when you made the decision to go out and, and do your own thing, okay. what what was behind the decision and how did you know I'm ready for this? There, I think there were a couple of factors. I mean, it's something that I should have it is interesting because I should have done it earlier. Mm. Right. I mean, I, I, I think how much earlier do you yeah. think? <laughs> Well, I don't know, five, ten years earlier. <laughs> wow. Five years at least. But yeah, I think What I, was holding you back? I think you're 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 part of an institution that long and you uh you hang on and Loyalty? You, and it's partly loyalty and it's partly also pride that you feel you helped create this thing and you, you have ownership in that. Yes. Um but you you believe that you could be doing something doing it better. You could have a you know a culture that's better, a process that's better. Um, you know, people around you that are focused on healthcare and fintech, uh, like Andrew and Trisha, Andrew Adams and Trisha Kemp, my partners that were in healthcare and fintech. And I think what happened was we just felt that this was a moment that we couldn't pass up. That the transformation in healthcare and fintech was going to be so enormous. It was a seminal time in the industry, and that we really wanted to add resources and go deep and declare we were a healthcare fintech firm, and that that's what we were going to do. And we've gone from the three of us to 24 of us that are dedicated to these two sectors. I mean, they are 30% of the economy. So I think it was just a moment where the the industry was ripe. We really needed to take advantage of, to stay the best, to be the best. It was time to challenge ourselves, to think differently, to develop an organization uh, in a different way. You know, if you don't grow... You know, you, 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 there's no way you can improve and be the best. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't, it was growing organizationally, but it was also challenging ourselves to grow in a different way. If you're not intellectually challenged by the work that you're doing, or you're not growing, or you don't feel that you're growing, your focus starts to shift around. You stop having that initial desire that you came at the work with in the beginning. Yeah, no. And instead of that. let's solve some really big problems and let's make that the biggest struggle as opposed to let's deal with red tape and bureaucracy and the expected challenges of the day. Um, So I think that's a, that's a good point. So what did you have in place? You had been talking to the other founders at the time. What did you have in place when you made the ultimate move? Well, we had, we had an L a longstanding LP who had come to us and said, that he would give us $100 million to start raising money around a, f- a firm and a fund. Um, and so that was a great start. Um, and then we had another group that wasn't even an investor in our firm 
that also came to us, two women who of one of the best firms, fund of funds in the country, come to us and say, we'd also like to invest $100 million. So it was a really wonderful start and a, a very safe way to to start a firm, and we raised five hundred million around that over a couple of months. Five hundred million, a couple of months, whatever, <laughs> no big deal. <laughs> uh, okay, so when you think back now on the choices that you've made along the way, what have been the toughest lessons for you? I th- I think the the message that I would give to others would be to. It's funny to say hang hang in after saying I, I probably should have started from earlier. But I, I think over a career, it's very easy when moments are challenging to, particularly as a woman, to say, you know, if you're if you don't have to stay for the money to say to bow out or to um, redirect. And I think that one thing I'm very happy about in my career is that um, I'll, I'll give you an example. Ninety nine, two thousand was a very tough time because Strangely, it was the internet bubble. There was a mania around tech. I was doing healthcare. Nobody was interested in that. My partners weren't interested in that. Um, and I could have left the firm at that time. And there were certainly indications they may not have wanted me to do that at that time. But it was interesting. You know, a market crashes a year, six months later, and all of a sudden technology is not so hot. And all of a sudden the returns that healthcare are producing look pretty darn good. And you've you've stuck around the hoop. You've hung around, you know, hung around the hoop, mm-hmm. and you become key to raising a large new fund. You know, so I think there are moments where people might get discouraged, where they feel like that what they're doing is not um, relevant. And I think you just have to step back. And I repotted myself. You know, I I thought about healthcare in a different way. I started the fintech group out of that, a completely different industry as I looked around and I really sat back and I didn't make an investment for a year. And I thought about like, what other areas are interesting that people aren't spending time in? You know, how do I one, intellectually challenge myself in a different way? And and two, maybe create a more secure future for myself. So I was a combination of, of things that led me to um, drive in a different way. And so I, I think that bad times often produce so many great things uh, and we all go through them. And I think it's a, not dwelling on them, but actually just focusing on the learnings. And I think that is that is really the, height of my, the best part about my career. And I think one thing I am capable of doing is I have a bit of a Teflon memory in that I don't, I don't dwell on the negative. I do look at learnings, but I don't think about, I think about the future and I think about like what can be created positively. And then that is, um, and this repotting, which is something you not only have to do in venture capital to be successful, but I think in almost to have a great career, you are constantly, particularly now, right, redefining yourself. And people have to be comfortable with that. Do you have a process that you go through when you're thinking about redefining yourself? I think the process, I'm a researcher at heart. I'm a researcher, so I study things. And I think I did, instead of acting, I did sit back. I spent a year I had, and analyzed what we'd done that had been successful. What were the characteristics of successful industries that perpetuated over long periods of time? Reverse um, engineering y- yeah. in some ways. In some ways, reverse engineering, like what is successful and what does success look like in broader business models. And fintech had a lot of that. And the transformation, when people thought about financial services and fintech in 2000, 2002, they thought Visa, MasterCard, American Express, you know, Bank of America, right? They didn't think, bill me later, PayPal, prepaid cards, uh, you know, mobile payments, right? They weren't thinking about that. And so I, 
it was a static – people thought of it as a static industry. And you could see why wouldn't technology be transforming that industry in the same way it had transformed so many others. Where so, do you see the biggest transformations ahead? What are you most excited about? Wow. In fintech and healthcare in combination. I mean, there's so many things. It's interesting because it, I love that we do both because one, generally fintech uh, technology is ahead of the use of technology in, in healthcare. And so we often are learning things from machine learning, uh, AI, blockchain, et cetera, that then may be relevant to healthcare. Um, so that's been a sort of a positive uh, intersection. Is that because healthcare is less consumer, it's enterprise based, yes. and it just takes a longer time for any business to adapt? And, and incorporate something? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's enterprise. It is um, it, it, these old legacy prayers. It's not – it's almost like it's been two sides of the brain. I mean literally if you used to be in healthcare, it's like you just didn't feel comfortable with technology. I don't know what that was. I mean I think we have a new generation of doctors and individuals coming into the industry and obviously have, that have grown up. You know, Millennials have grown up with technology. So they're comfortable with it, um, which I think is helping to transform the industry. But it just wasn't part of the DNA. Um, and it is – fintech is really technology you know, it's a technology business directed at uh, at the banks, and the banks obvi- obviously have a, a direct relationship with the consumer, and the consumer is expecting these things. What for you has been the worst advice you've received along the way? <laughs> the worst advice? Well, as I said, I have a Teflon memory. Do I? <laughs> you just <laughs> so forgot all. I of forgot. It. You know the bad advice. Um, I I really I can't think of really truly bad advice um, that I've received because I think you selectively pick the good advice and try to follow your instincts and um, and you know pers- pursue your dreams. If you were going to go back to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and have a chat with little Annie Lamont, <laughs> well, not Lamont back then, Huntress, Huntress, <laughs> little Annie Huntress, what what advice would you give her? Just do everything like you did before. <laughs> I mean, do it. Do it again. I mean, I have had a magical life. I really had a magical life. I am so grateful. Um, I I loved my youth. I loved my time at Stanford. I mean, I think Stanford was seminal. I mean, that was just an, an amazing decision and transformed my life. Um, I, you know, the decision to come to Westport was and and join Oak and get into the venture capital world. I met my husband the first week I moved to the East Coast. I mean, that was an amazing decision, not only for my industry, but an even more important one in terms of marrying the the person who was absolutely the best partner in the world for me. Um, it just I couldn't I couldn't ask for more. That's great. I was having a conversation the other day with my interns and they said everyone who comes on the podcast always talks about how those early decisions were so critical and it was stressing them out. (laughs) And I said, but here's the thing. I think we go back and we look in retrospect because, for example, I went to the University of Chicago, grew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Those are things that make me who I am. But guess what? Like I could have gone somewhere else and I would be telling you potentially a different story and I would still be telling it to you now at 36 years old saying, And guess what? It, everything worked out the right, way it was supposed right, to. Right, right. Exactly. So yeah. I, I totally yeah. agree with you that yeah. it's a wonderful thing to look back with total right. gratitude and yeah. to feel like everything happened for a reason and the right, right. reason. Yeah. But for anyone who's listening, feeling anxious, right. I think just the, keep continuously working hard and pushing right. yourself right. and allowing yourself to have smart, interesting experiences that challenge you. 
that's really what it's about. There's not the one experience no, that no, has I've... to be the thing in order to get you to the next place. No, completely agree. I, I think what I see is way too much analysis about these decisions amongst this generation. I mean, just go with your instinct. Go with people you believe in. I think the most important thing is to be working with people that you uh, respect and that inspire you. And then just keep working hard, absolutely, and and follow your path and your gut instincts. There is, um, I know my oldest said she was you know, like, what's her five-year plan? All her friends said her five-year plan coming out of college. And I was like, you know, what is the expression, you know, uh, man plans and God laughs. Right. You know, I, it's just so I've never so had hard. a five-year plan, no, ever. I, no, I never had a five-year plan. It just, just go with the flow and uh, make sure you're, you know, just have a passion and work hard. Annie Lamont, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. All right. It is the end of the interview, which means it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of you, our amazing listeners, who's building something of your own. And this week's No Limits Entrepreneur is Olivia Landau. She was actually nominated by one of our ABC News producers, Stephanie Fuerte. Thank you, Stephanie. Olivia is the CEO and founder of The Clear Cut, which is a jewelry company that she created to help take the stress out of buying an engagement ring. Because that is very, very stressful. Taylor, yes. Shaking your head, yes. My husband would definitely attest to that. So Olivia is a diamond expert, a gemologist graduate of the Gemological Institute of America, and a fourth-generation jeweler. She was working for a large diamond wholesaler after she graduated and became her friend's go-to expert on engagement rings. Could have used a friend like that. And really explained how to start the process of looking, what to look for, how to design the right ring, how to avoid a scam, so important, and where to find the deals. And Olivia quickly realized that there just wasn't a lot of straightforward information because there were so many charlatans out there about how to buy engagement rings for millennials from a relatable source. So first, she started a diamond educational blog, which eventually grew into her brand and company. Here she is to tell you all about it. Hi, I'm Olivia Landau, founder and CEO of The Clear Cut. I'm a diamond expert, GIA graduate gemologist, and fourth-generation jeweler. At The Clear Cut, we eliminate the stress and confusion of buying a diamond engagement ring through personalized curation and expert education. We create one-of-a-kind bespoke engagement rings that are at the highest quality and the best value. With our growing community of over 75,000 followers, we are quickly disrupting the antiquated jewelry business and also breathing new life into this generation of consumers. I love this idea. Congratulations, Olivia. I wish you and the clear cut continued success. And remember, you can head on over to my Instagram at Rebecca Jarvis to hear more from Olivia and her story. Don't forget, if you or someone you know should be featured here on No Limits as the Entrepreneur of the Week, send me those nominations to no limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. You can also shoot me your career questions there. If you have some ideas about what we're doing on the podcast, feel free. All feedback is welcome. I know how busy we are, so when you send a note, I do appreciate it. And I especially appreciate it when you send a review. Like Finn17, who says, As the father of two recent college grad daughters, I not only recommend they listen to Rebecca's podcast, but I also enjoy listening to her interviews of highly accomplished women. And Rebecca is every bit as accomplished as the women she interviews. Wow, thanks. Highly useful, informative, and very well done. Keep up the terrific work. 
So Fin17, thank you. I really appreciate that. And I hope your daughters are listening. Maybe with you. It's a family affair. Perfect. Finally, a shout out to our awesome team here that makes this happen week after week. Our producer, Taylor Dunn, editor, Michelle Boncardo, research assistant, Annie Osakwe, and the ABC radio team, David Rind, Elizabeth Russo, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, and Steve Jones. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.